What is going on, everybody? It's Athea Sam here. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Thank you guys for listening and tuning in today. We are interviewing a new friend of mine, a fellow Canadian, and his name is Harry Potvin. And Harry Potvin is a the host of a podcast, a top-ranked podcast called The Mental Corner. Um, he was a student athlete for many years, very successful captain of a swim team in his fourth and final year of university, and basically struggled with horrendous depression, um, suicidal ideation, tried to take his life on multiple occasions, and managed to get to the other side and is now an advocate and a spokesperson for men's mental health, for athletes' mental health, uh, body image, and just a whole plethora of subjects that are really needed today. And so I brought him in to to just have a conversation around some of these uh, more taboo subjects and, you know, I wanted to hear his story. So he, he gets quite honest and quite personal. So if you find um, even stories about suicide to be triggering, which I, I did at one point in my life, having lost three friends to suicide, um, then, then just be aware and be careful. As you listen to this, you may need to turn it off. And that's totally okay. We respect that. We totally understand that. Um, and then we talk a little bit about some practical things as well. You know, for somebody who is, maybe you're struggling with uh, body image issues, which is obviously very common with porn addiction, just because of what we are conditioning our brains to when we watch porn and, and the male figures and portions, proportions rather, and everything else. Um, but we talk about other things as well, right? Like suicidal ideation, mental well-being for men and what that looks like. And I, I, I just encourage you to, to listen in. This is much more of a story-based interview. Um, this is not where you're going to get um, piles of, of information and data. This is a lot more conversational. It's a lot more relaxed. And um, you're going to find it very informative, if not more informative than our typical interview, um, just because we can learn so much from other people's experiences. So without further ado, here's my interview with Harry Potvin. So here's the million dollar question. How are men like us who work hard, have good motives and a God-given purpose supposed to fulfill the calling on our lives and the dreams in our hearts, all while establishing sexual integrity, thriving relationships, and a meaningful connection with God? That is the question. And this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Sathya Sam. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. All right. Well, I'm here with my main man, Harry Potvin, host of the Mental Corner Podcast. Dude, it's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Of course, man. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to get started. Yeah, yeah. So this is our second take. The uh, internet was a bit wonky, but... (laughs) I was saying in the first take, and I, I think it's worth mentioning again, it's, um, you've done incredible things with your podcast in a relatively short span of time, and I think it's just a, it's a Canadian inferiority complex, but you, know, you see a good podcast and you think, oh, they must be American. So I was super thrilled when I interviewed on it, and I found out that you're actually uh, just like an hour and a half around the lake from where I am, man. So it's, uh, it's cool to have somebody like you on the podcast, but uh, the fact that you're Canadian makes it a bit sweeter. Of course, man. Yeah, we got to represent more. I, I get the exact same thing. Whenever I see a successful podcast, I think American. And so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you you hear it, you're like, whoa, Canadians can make good podcasts? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I know. Funny. It's just funny how it works. So, um, okay, you you do the Mental Corner podcast. You are showcasing stories of people who have uh, some really remarkable experiences um, overcoming like seemingly insurmountable mental health challenges. And, and doing incredible things with their lives. You as well are an example of that. 
And um, I love your podcast. I love how transparent it is. I love that you as the host are very transparent with your audience and you do that really well on social media too. So um, man, I'm just a very, a very big fan of everything you do. And I'm wondering if maybe to kick this thing off, you can tell us a little bit about your story and your journey that led you to start the podcast in the first place. Yeah, of course, man. If if I if I look all the way back, and I'm I'm gonna keep it a little shorter than this, but if I really think back, it starts from such a young age, right? Because I'm a man first off, and I'm a male athlete. I've been a male athlete for a long time, and the okay. problem is I'm gonna stick to men as a gen- general generality, if that's even a word, yeah. first. But men were never really taught how to show emotion. They were, they were taught being angry. They were taught being happy. They were sometimes taught being sad, but in a way that was almost angry. And so as a kid growing up, like I never knew how to express myself. And I was a very emotional kid from the get-go because mm-hmm. I, I, I was just into different things than the other boys were. I, I didn't like cars. I wasn't really into sports until I got into them. I was more into bugs and like Disney and all of that stuff. And that made yeah. me a target for bullying growing up as a kid. And so... Mm-hmm getting bullied constantly when when we when my family and i moved schools i I left all my friends behind obviously at a young age and at the new school i had some friends but immediately was bullied like from the jump just viewed as weaker than everyone i was called you know gay a pussy like all these all these bad things and like i was in grade two and I didn't know how to express myself or I didn't have any outlets. So that's kind of when the self-hatred started growing or the, the questioning, am I even worth anything started growing? Because I was like, well, if all these kids are agreeing that I am what they're saying I am, what like, am I really worth anything? Like, it's hard for me to believe that I have any self-worth. So it started off there. And again, as men, you're not really told to express this. You're, you're kind of just told to suck it up defend yourself, be a man, all of that. And then if you keep moving forward in my story, I'll fast forward a little bit, but basically I had some issues in the family going on and I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. And it just led to me holding it all in because every time I would try to express myself, people would kind of be like, how do you think that makes me feel? Or they would be like, be a man, stop complaining about it, stop crying, stop showing emotion. All these things that we were all taught as kids and like people listening are probably rolling their eyes because they heard the same thing. But basically, basically I decided, you know what, I'm just going to keep it all in. I'm going to suppress it. And it, the only way I'm going to get better isn't by addressing how I feel. It's by focusing on my family and friends and making sure they're okay. That's the only way I'll get better because I don't want to go internally and do that work. So throughout high school, that's all I did. Suppressed it. Never really talked about it. I was labeled a hothead for a long time because growing up again, you're taught how to be angry. And that was the only way I knew how to express myself without being judged, right? Because as soon as you cry, everyone's like, look at that weakling. So Mm. I was angry. I didn't, I I was angry at the world, angry at myself, didn't know how to express myself, but I always ignored it. And, And the best part about high school is that you're distracted all the time. So my schedule went, wake up at 4am to go swim, go straight to school. After school, go to rugby practice. After rugby practice, go to swimming. After swimming, go home, do homework, go to bed. If I even wanted to do internal work, there was no time. (laughs) And I loved it. I loved that part of it. So it wasn't really until university when you start to get that free time, you lose some of those distractions. And that's when I realized, wow, there is a lot of stuff going on up here in my head 
that I have not been prepared for and I don't have the tools to deal with. And so it led to me just not only questioning my self-worth again, revisiting those old feelings and emotions from high school, elementary school, reliving the trauma that I experienced, but also just experiencing this suicidal ideation, this body dysmorphia, this hatred for myself that I didn't even know how to handle. I didn't know how to prepare for it. It was just kind of like a big tsunami of emotions that I, it's like if a tsunami hit a beach and I had an umbrella, I was like, I don't even know what to do. (laughs) And so I, I was on the swim team at the university, but that was really my only outlet. And I didn't really open up to anybody. And so these emotions started getting worse and worse. And I I kept trying to go to therapy, but I was too stubborn and I had some bad experiences with therapy that led me to go, well, I'm just broken then. Like no one can fix me. Hmm. And it wasn't really until my last year of university where I, the suicidal ideation got really bad and got really realistic. And I remember just, I tell this story all the time because it's the one that hits home like the hardest for myself, but I was captain of the swim team in my last year and we were doing a team cheer. And I, I remember looking around and I was just like, this is going to be my last cheer. Like I, I'm, I was ready to go. I was, I was prepared to just end my life and end this madness that was going on in my head. And it just like, yeah, like I don't even know how to explain it. Like all the color everywhere was just gone. And I, re- I remember just going, I'm, I find a lot of comfort knowing that I'll be gone. And so I tried to take my life a couple times. And on the last attempt, it got very close. And I remember afterwards, I was sitting there thinking like, what the heck am I doing? Like, I I don't, I don't actually want, you know, I don't want to go. I just feel like there's no other option for me. And so I thought of my friends, I thought of my family, I thought of everyone who loved me. And I was like, I need to get help, not just for me, but for them. Like, cause I really don't want to go. And so I remember we can get into this later as well, but I remember going to the therapist's for the first time since the incident, my friend had to walk me there because I was so nervous. And I remember that's just, that therapist was the one that worked. It it just, I started doing the self-work. I started doing the therapy. I started taking antidepressants, doing all of that. And the university actually asked me to be on a men's only mental health panel that November. So I started getting help in like September, October. And so in November, they asked me to come on this panel to talk about men's mental health. And I was like, you know what? I've talked about mental health before because our sports team are big advocates for them at the university, but I never got too into it. And so I was like, well, I've already done the hard part. I've admitted to myself, I need help. And I've talked and I've opened up to some of my friends and some of my family and I've gotten that help. So why don't I just be open about it? I'm tired of hiding from everyone and feeling ashamed that I had to get help and I had to do this. And so I remember, I remember I didn't write anything for that speech. We each got like, I want to say 20 minutes and I hadn't written anything until the day before because I didn't know how to even, I was just so nervous. I was trying to put it off. And then I was like, just whatever I'm thinking right now, put it on the paper. Just be honest with everyone. Like what, like you have to do this. And so the day of there's 300 strangers in this auditorium and a couple of my friends and teammates. And the only thoughts that are going through my head are, well, one, this is a big group (laughs) of people I don't know. 300, Uh, man. That's a lot your first time. Yeah, it was was intimidating. Um, And then are people, are my friends going to view me as less of a person? Are my teammates going to view me as less of a captain? And Mm. are people going to view me as less of a man for opening up? 
about this right. stuff. And are you still I, the captain when this happens? Yes. Yeah, okay. I'm still the captain. Okay. And this is like two months into my captaincy. Wow. So it's like Jeez. no other captain on the swim team at the university that I remember had ever talked about it. And so I was in uncharted waters and I was like, they're going to never respect me again. Like, this is just going to, I'm going to lose all credibility. But then I was like, I remember the pain of holding it. And I was like, this is, I, I have to do this. And so I don't remember saying anything, honestly. Um, I blacked out. I think my body went into shock. Uh, <laughs> my friend filmed it so I can confirm that I did open up. And <laughs> um, but I remember the reception after afterwards. And it was just completely opposite to what my inner dialogue was saying. Just completely opposite. Wow. And not only did my teammates, you know, start conversations, come up to me, say like, thank you for sharing that, showed respect. But people that I never, I had never talked to were like, Hey, I went through something like that. My boyfriend went through something like that. My father, my brother. And that's when I realized like as corny and as cheesy as it sounds, I was not alone in dealing with this stuff. But when you're going through it, you feel like you're the only person and you feel like no one's going to get it ever. And so that's when I realized there is a lot of people out there just from who have reached out to me who yeah. are struggling and who don't even know that other people are struggling. Like yeah. they, they, they think they're the only one. And so I thought to myself again, well, I've done the hard part now. I thought the hard part was going to get therapy and doing that stuff. But then I've really done the hard part where I've opened up and talked to random people about it. <laughs> yeah. So why don't I just start posting YouTube videos about my own experiences? And so I started doing that. But then contrary to popular belief i don't like hearing myself i don't like hearing my own voice and so talking to the camera and then editing it was painful and so and so my buddy who lived in the room across from me at the house said hey let me come on for an episode and we talked about swimming the mental health aspect of sports men's mental health all of that Mm. and it got really good reception and i posted on youtube and i remember the minute or the the very moment that i decided i want to do this like legitimately was that guy who was, who came on the show, my friend, his father and his father's friends came down for a birthday to, to where we were. And we were sitting in a room drinking beers in a circle and they were talking about mental health. And these guys are like in their fifties in their late fifties. Mm. And they were like, Hey man, we never talk about this stuff. Like this is not something we've ever talked about, but your video made us start talking about it. Wow. And I was like, there it is. I love talking to people. I hate talking alone. <laughs> and I, I want people to start this conversation. I want this conversation to keep going for people like that who have never even, even thought of having that conversation. Yeah. And long, I mean, to wrap up on that long-winded answer, that's where it started. Wow. That's an amazing story, man. That was a very good description because obviously a lot happened in there. Um can you talk a little bit about being an athlete? Because I think that um, in some in some ways you hear these stories, right? You hear these stories about people that are high achieving. They're, um, you know, captain of the varsity team. They look like they have it all together, but things are going on within. And you mentioned how being a man can often stop us from getting the help we need because uh, we're not taught and we're certainly not given permission to go to some of those more sensitive areas but then i can only imagine like i played a bit of travel soccer and then just rec sports and even in those environments like they're so macho and there's such a stigma around anything um that would be 
like remotely feminine or emotional or whatever um, that you even if that is part of you who you are you can't show it um, so I can only imagine playing at a, a much more competitive level uh, that you must have it, it must have exacerbated things a little bit like how did, did how does being an athlete play into the story man it, it played a lot and I mean I want to preface by saying I, I love I loved swimming I loved it and I loved those teammates it's just we didn't know any better like yeah. I, I, I can think all the way back to when I was a little swimmer. I was like 11 and I was still trying to figure myself out, trying to figure out how to express myself without getting judged. And the older teammates that I would look up to on the team, right? Like the older adult, like male swimmers, hmm. if they had a bad race, if they, if there was something they didn't like in practice, if something was, wasn't going their way, how did they react? They would punch the lockers, bang their head on the wall, swear at people, cuss people out. Wow. And as an 11 year old, I'm looking up and I'm going, oh, no one's judging them for how they're reacting. So that's got to be how I react because I, I, I haven't seen a single tear. So <laughs> just for, like from an early age, you're taught, don't show that emotion. And even growing up in high school and university, there would be swimmers that, you know, would, would post a bad time they'd have a bad race or something would happen again on this pool deck or something they would react they would cry they would they would punch stuff they would they're so upset they don't even they don't even they can't even control themselves it's like a whole year's worth of work and you swim a bad race you start crying hmm. and i remember the dialogue on the, the swim deck is like oh that guy's weak or like that guy's a weirdo or hmm. he's not a legit contender he's not a competitor don't worry about him cuz he cries easily and just hearing that language as a guy who has is overly emotional, I'll admit it. I cry at every movie um, <laughs> and, and is just trying to find a way to express himself. It, it played a huge role because you want when you're in that scenario, you want to be that macho guy because it's yeah. this glorified environment that you just want to be a part of. You're like, I'm, I'm in this group. I want to be like everyone else in this group. I want to not feel upset. I don't want to feel depressed. I don't want to feel like I should end my life. But that isn't enough to stop those emotions. That yeah. want to fit into the macho group isn't enough. You have to go get the work. And so it played a huge role because I, instead of getting the work, I was just like, why can't I fit in like everyone else? Yeah, yeah. I can definitely see how that, that would play in. And then you kind of compound it with just the pressure that comes with being an athlete. Like you said, like a year of training for one race and that kind of pressure, I can just imagine. Um, I'm curious what you think about how this ties into performance because um, I actually remember I was in a mastermind and there was a guy there. He was a, a really, really um, like top level CrossFit athlete and had won a bunch of competitions and stuff. I'm sorry, didn't, didn't win competitions, but competed at a high level. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, somebody came and gave a talk about this sort of subject matter, about the importance of you know uh, respectful communication, dealing with your emotions. Um, and it was sort of in a context of, of fathering you know, and teaching your kids to handle their emotions at a young age. And his rebuttal was, he said, um, this all sounds amazing. Like, I'm so glad this worked out for you. But um, I just know that if I was ever raised the way you just said we should be raising our kids, I would have never become an athlete because mm. it was like it was the pain. It was the anger. It was all the things that were wrong with my life that actually motivated me to make something of myself and become an athlete. And I guess I'm curious, just like given your experience as an athlete, obviously 
um, and now being on the other side, like having worked through some mental health issues and being a lot more stable, like what would you say to something like that? Like, is it possible to still perform at a high level and be mentally healthy? Or is there some truth to the point that he was making? Oh, yeah. I, I think there's definitely some truth to what he was saying. I mean, I think there's a fine line between channeling that anger effectively and then going on the other side of it. And I'll explain. Like, I always had a chip on my shoulder as a swimmer. I think that came from the constant bullying as a kid and from being told I w wasn't good enough, whether it was from people around me or from my own inner dialogue. So that definitely fueled my fire. That anger fueled my fire. And it does help when training gets tough. You have to turn on that next level to get to where you want to go. Right. I completely agree with that. Like if I didn't have that chip, I don't think I'd be able to do it. That being said, I think in my own personal experience, what happened with me was that part was great, of course. And it really helped me in, in training. It really helped me get fit and get prepared to race. My problem was I was so caught up in comparison. I was so caught up in body dysmorphia. I was so caught up in this self-deprecation that all of that anger training, all of that chip on your shoulder training just went out the window. Like I, I remember I would, people called me a practice swimmer. And it's this term that you have in swimming where someone in practice is doing incredible times or they train their butts off. They're kicking everyone else's butts. They're like one of the hard trainers. And then they get to a swim meet and their times don't translate okay. because there's like things like on track times or something. So in practice, you're like, if you, if you swim this time in two lengths, then realistically at a swim meet, you should be able to do this, all of this stuff. It's like, a, there's a lot of science behind it, Sure. but basically my projections never followed through ever. Huh. And it's because I trained great and I was, I was prepared, but once I got to the meet, I remember I would look around, be like, wow, everyone's so much faster than me. Or I'd look around and be like, wow, everyone looks so much better than I do. Cause I was always the bigger kid. Mm. Or it would be me going, oh, you actually can't do this. You, you, you are not a swimmer. And that's just a dialogue I had taught myself in like a weird self-defense way. Whenever I had a bad swim, I'd be like, well, I'm just not a swimmer. I'm not built to be a swimmer. It's fine. And so all of that kind of played a part in the fact that my performance got affected every time hmm. so i i completely agree with what he's saying yeah of course but you have to learn both sides yeah yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense um i i think of like kobe who used to talk about how um the song that played when they lost in the finals i think it was an 08 to the celtics um he played that song every day for two years straight when he'd work <laughs> out just to remind himself of the pain you know oh my god um, yeah and so you can you can kind of see that that value of like yeah he actually he wasn't you're not suppressing the pain in that case right you're actually acknowledging it but you're choosing to channel it um and that that makes sense to me you've mentioned body dysmorphia twice now and i want to ask you about it because i think that's the last term that somebody would expect in a conversation around an athlete how did body dysmorphia develop for you oh from from again at a very early age um okay. I think this is, I mean, I, I tell this story as a joke now because looking back, it's funny, but back then as a kid, you know, it's traumatizing. Um, in I think it was grade two. I want to say grade two or grade four, whatever it was. I had this huge crush on a girl, like the, the biggest crush. Okay. And I had already been bullied pretty heavily for two years up until that point. 
And I remember I, I confessed my love for this grade four girl. <laughs> I, I was like, I love you. Like, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and um, we dated, quote unquote, as a grade four. You know, yeah, so as one does. Yeah. You, you see them at recess and that's about it. Um, <laughs> and I remember one day, I, I think it was, I, I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure it was my birthday. And she got her friend to come to me and go, hey, she doesn't want to date you anymore. And I'm like, what? On my birthday? <laughs> Why? Cut throw, and you, you, couldn't, you couldn't wait a day? And, then, and she goes, you're too fat. She's like, can you even see your toes? And oh. I was like, what a strange... I was like, can I see my toes? What a stupid question. And then I looked down and I couldn't. I couldn't see my toes because I had a belly. And from that point on, remember like even now remembering the kids around me laughing about it like pointing fingers doing all that it's that's where it sprouted was huh. from the public opinion on the playground of like this kid's fat and so how that played into athletics i had that image in my head forever it was you're too fat you're too fat i actually got into swimming because i came back from summer camp one year and my parents were like you're too fat like you have to lose some of this weight or else wow. like you're you're going to be obese and so i had that in my head the whole time and that's kind of where it developed and swimming is a sport where i mean you're wearing very minimal clothing like yeah. we were speedos <laughs> and it didn't and we would like count our body fat every week we'd count our weight every week and no sure. matter no matter how skinny i got i look at pictures now i'm like damn i i, I wish i could go back to that but no matter how skinny i got that was the image in my head. I was always fat. And so mm -hmm. that was, that's where the body dysmorphia developed. Okay. So this body dysmorphia thing's going on. You're in university, you're captain of the swim team, but obviously a lot of pressure. Um, and then the inability to really, it sounds like express yourself, like you're a more sensitive personality and the environments that you're in are not giving you permission to get the things that you really need. And you mentioned that it led to suicide ideation, which I think is a really important subject. And I was hoping we could talk about it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, can you maybe just explain what suicide, uh, suicide ideation is just so that people know? And then um, you don't have to get super in depth about it, but I, I guess I'm kind of just curious about like what the progression was like and what, what led it to stop as well. Cause I, I'm under the impression that's not really a thing anymore. Yeah, for sure. So basically, I mean, I'm obviously not a professional, so I can only explain it from my own point of view. Okay. But yeah, of for for me, suicidal ideation was just like finding comfort, kind of romanticizing in a weird, sick way, the idea of taking my own life, hmm. thinking like, oh, no one will care if I go. Actually, people will probably prefer it. Like hmm. that that's what it, it was to me. It was just this constant stream of thoughts of you should end your life. You should go. No one cares. And people would be very happy if you left. And no one in the real world ever expressed that, right? Mm, but it's right. just this inner belief. And basically how it got so bad was actually, I think I, it was first year university was kind of when looking back now, some of those signs were coming out. And what happened was, Basically, it had been like half a year of just feeling all these emotions, realizing I had a lot to deal with, overwhelmed and feeling hopeless because I didn't have any tools for it. 
And so the residence area that I lived at was across the street from campus. Okay. And I would have to cross a street every day to go to swimming, to go to classes. And I remember I would walk and I would see cars drive by and I'd be like, let's just see how close I can get before I get hit. And at first it's just like one of those thoughts, right? It's just an innocent passing thought where you're like, oh, that'd be silly. But then you start going, what if I got even closer? Or going like, what if I got hit? Now, what if I got hit really bad? Right? And then it just kept progressing. What if I got hit and I didn't come up? Hmm. And would anyone care? Probably not. And so those, those little passing thoughts, I never addressed them. It, it became a routine. Every morning, I'd think the same thing. I would try to get that thrill of getting close to a car, backing up a little bit, and then keep, keep going. I, I would get that. I would chase that thrill. And that's where it developed. And then just from not addressing it, not telling anyone about it, I remember there was another time uh, I got a really bad midterm mark back. I mean, one of the many um, <laughs> in first year. <laughs> but I remember I got it. I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't have the tools to handle it. And I said, I'm going home. I went to the res room and I just hit my head on the wall and I was hoping that something cracked. I was like, I really pray that I have some internal bleeding or I broke my skull or did something. I hit my head until I, I, I remember I woke up the next morning on the floor, but nothing had happened. I, so it, it's just, it's stuff like that where in the moment you're going, huh, that's just everyday stuff. But then you know, you don't address it. You don't do the work to fix it or you don't tell anyone and it becomes real. It becomes really real and you're absorbed in these thoughts and then they become your reality. Like I said, when I was in fourth year, I lost like the color everywhere because I hadn't addressed it and it became real. This image of my life was my life sucks and I should, I should have died four years ago, wow. but I've been, you know, wasting time. And so that's, kind of where it all developed yeah that's crazy i've i've heard a couple people use that descriptor of like um the color of life is just gone and um and that's that's really uh it's quite insightful so th thanks for just sharing that part man um you mentioned that you know uh the it sounded like the first turning point for you was actually getting useful therapeutic input you know finding a therapist that could actually help you but you had some bad experiences before that. I'm wondering if we can touch on those really quickly. What 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 happened? Man, uh, where to begin? So I guess <laughs> I guess I'll I'll talk about the first time. And I actually talked to a therapist recently about this, and uh, she had said that that probably wasn't a therapist; it was more of a physician. But the problem was when I was at university in my first year, the resources were so minimal that if you reached out for a therapist, they would link you with a physician. Like it's just, wow. there was no differentiation because it was such a small area. And granted, when I left, it became such a way bigger area, way more resources and everything. It's awesome now. But when I started, it was such a taboo subject. So there was mm -hmm. really not that much going on. And so basically what happened was I, w I went and uh, I got called into this person's office. And I remember sitting there and I had a full-blown panic attack waiting for her, right? Huh. And the problem was in my head, I'm going, I'm associating therapy. I'm associating getting help with crazy people. You know, the, the stuff you see in the movies, the stuff right. that you hear around the pool deck or around school or anything. You're like, oh, that I'm crazy now. Like, am I that insane that I need to go get therapy? 
And I started having a full-blown panic attack. And this person was 20 minutes late. And she walked in. I'm like a mess, right? I'm crying. I'm sweating. It's gross. And uh, she gives me the up and down. She looks up and down and she's like, what's wrong with you? And I go, hmm, that's a strange question. But (laughs) I was just, I I said, you know what? I'm, I'm really feeling hopeless. I feel like I want to die. I hate myself. I kind of just spilled it. And she, she was taking notes and she's like, okay, okay. And then she wrote a prescription and said, good luck. And that was my first experience with therapy. And so I left that going, oh, wow, that's therapy. (laughs) That was horrible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel worse. Yeah. So the, the, the other couple times, I mean, I, 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 we don't have to go into all of them, but like people just talking over me, wanting to hear their own voice, people kind of looking at their watch the whole time to make sure we got up to the 30 minutes. Uh, People just, I think the biggest issue for the first cut, like first six, the biggest issue was everyone came in with the same question. And for some people, this may work, but for me, it didn't. They came with the same question. Where does your story start? Where do, where do you think your problems start? And the problem was each session was half an hour. And so I would just repeat the same 30 minutes of my story right. to like all these random people. And I got to a point where I was like, I'm not getting anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I feel so much worse because I have not done, I haven't dove into anything. I've just been telling you the background. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, yeah, that's that makes some sense. of the experiences. Yeah. Yeah, and the real only reason I'm asking is because I think um, on platforms like us, we're we're advocates for therapy, and I can imagine people who are like, okay, you know, Sathya said I should go get a therapist, and then you have a bad experience, and then you're like, oh, what what's like? There must be something wrong yeah. with me, you know? Um, we don't always hear about the negative experiences, so um, I want to get I want to get on the more hopeful side of it. Obviously, we've delved into your story quite a bit. Sure, yeah. Um, but I guess my first question is, you, you mentioned that you know when you really reached that low point, your friend took you to yet another therapist and that's where things started to turn around. Why did you even agree to go to another therapist if you already had all these bad experiences prior? Yeah, no, I mean, I, that day, man, I, I remember this was like the day after or a couple days after I was in the library and I just had, I looked gray. I had like this this aura around me that my friend my friends told me I had this aura that was just heavy. And so my one friend she came up and she's like is everything okay? And one of my best friends. So I was like honestly, no. I tried to end my life and I'm probably going to do it again. And she took me out of the library because first of all, everyone was there <laughs> and okay. it's, it's a lot of pressure when all these eyes are on you. Right. Um, and she said, I'm, I want you to go to therapy. And I said, no, no way. <laughs> Not after the last six times. It yeah. doesn't work for me. I'm broken and there's nothing to do. And she said, what if I come with you? And again, I was like, no, I'm not going. She said, come on, let's go. And she held my hand and we went. And I think it was the biggest moment for me because going alone was terrifying and I I would not have gone again. Even if she had been like, go to therapy and hadn't gone with me, I would have been like, no, but having that extra support there for me. And then she, she came with me. We sat in the waiting room together. 
She waited until I got into the office with this therapist and then left and then texted me after asking for updates. It was just that moment of support. The moment where I realized someone actually gives a crap, like that's what changed it. Wow. So tell us a little bit about your journey. Like what is it, what does it look like to work through, um, you know, there's lots of moving parts here. I imagine many of them probably stem from a few more core fundamental parts. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about what, what have things look like on the other side of you just learning to experience mental health on a regular basis? Man, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, even talking about my story, um, even now, like as I'm telling you, I'm kind of mentally reflecting on the side. It's weird to tell your story now, yeah, right? Because, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way when you share it. You're going, was that really me? Like I'll have, I'll have core memories of that and going, that wasn't me. That was just a movie I watched. It's like, no, that was, that was your life, man. Like that's how low you were. And so on the other side, I think the biggest things for me were with this show, with talking to all these guests and sharing these stories and listening to people's stories, you kind of start to not only gain this knowledge of mental health, but also of yourself because Mm -hmm. it allows you to have that conversation internally, allows you to look up stuff that maybe your guest said on like, Oh, maybe that, uh, you know, maybe that relates to my experience. And so it was, it, it has allowed me to give, to have, sorry, this huge self-discovery mm. and kind of put the pieces together of why things happen the way they did. And I think it's giving me that closure on a lot of the stuff that I experienced and mm. it, the, kind of this inner peace. Now, granted, uh, I'm not perfect and I still have a lot of dips um, I think with social media, I have I experienced a lot of comparison, body dysmorphia stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm still trying to find that healthy balance of working hard and overworking. Yeah. Um, and anyway, like there's so many different areas where, again, I'm not perfect. I, I need to work on it. And I think that's the beauty of it is that we can always work on something. Of you course. know, it, it's never like, oh, this is my journey and then I'm done. Like I'm perfect. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a piece that you could improve on. So that, yeah, it's it's been beautiful. Yeah, that's really amazing. What are some things in your life where it's like, if Harry does this on a regular basis, he's good to go. And if he doesn't, then we could be back to the Mm. university days. Right. Uh, First one's moving, 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 getting Mm. a sweat in. I actually, the weeks where I told, I kind of opened up on social media saying, I'm feeling really burnt out. I need to take a step back. Those weeks where I was experiencing burnout, I hadn't exercised. It was just kind of, I got home from work and I was like, I'm too tired to do anything. And I didn't get a sweat in for like two weeks. So whenever, whenever I'm getting that sweat in or that moving, and it doesn't have to be anything crazy. It can be like a yoga or a walk. Like you hear it all the time and I get it. It's like yada, yada, whatever, go for a walk, man. But it really does help getting that sweat in really does help. Um, So that's, that's a big one. I think another one for me is every night before I go to bed, I kind of reflect on the day and kind of go like, oh, what went well? What didn't go well? Why didn't that go well? And then why did that go well? And how can I improve the next day? Mm -hmm. I think when I was really at the bottom and I was really struggling, I never reflected. And so I only focused on the negatives going on every single day. I was like, well, great. I said you too to the guy at the movie theater who was giving me popcorn, (laughs) but I didn't, I didn't focus on that. Well, you and your friend had a great time in the library today or whatever it was. 
It, yeah. it could be something as minor as that, or it could be like, hey, you go into an argument with your girlfriend, but you did this. You ignore the but. You only focus on the argument. Yeah. So I think having yeah. that reflection every night really helps me because um, it gives me some perspective on the day and then kind of helps me wake up feeling lighter. Um, and then music and books, some sort of entertainment that kind of even for an hour gets my mind away from whatever the heck I'm struggling with kind of yeah. g- gets me absorbed into this other world or someone's art or whatever it is. I think yeah. that's another vital piece for me that I've really used in the last couple of years. That's really insightful, man. I'm, I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit on technology and social media. I know you've already kind of hit on it a bit. Um, I forget who I was talking to about this, um, but like, uh, I've, at least for me, I feel like I'm a little bit unique because I grew up without internet. I grew up without really all the tech. Uh, we had like this really ugly 13 inch tube TV that we grew <laughs> up watching, you know, not even cable, you know, we just had an antenna. Um, and, um, and so I've, I've seen the transition and I know a life before technology and all that. I don't really know how valuable that is. Like technology is integrated into all of our lives. But um, I know you're a little bit younger and I know that, um, you know, when social media was becoming common, you would have been very young. In your reflection now, do you, do you think that played into some of these dynamics and, and maybe not even just social media specifically, but technology at large? And um, I guess I'm also wondering if, I don't know, do you have any boundaries around that kind of stuff now to, to mitigate and, and help your mental health? Yeah, for sure. Um, I. I think when I was growing up, social media was a big thing, of course. Yeah. I think it was it was different in the sense that now it's almost like a lot of younger kids' whole reality. Like yes. a lot of kids only communicate through that. A lot of kids only see the world through that lens. And so when I was growing up, I had that, the social media, of course, but I also had a grip on what reality was. I, I think sports helped me with that. I think my parents helped me with that. Um, I think my love for nature helped me with that. It got me out of the house, away from the screens. But even just because I wasn't impacted by it very much at a young age doesn't mean I wasn't impact, impacted by it later. Like yeah. this last two years with the pandemic, the only way I could reach out to anyone was through social media. Yeah. With the podcast, the only way I could advertise it was through social media. And so you you see all these pictures, you see everything. And no matter how many tools, tips and tricks you have, that body dysmorphia, that comparison, that feeling major FOMO, like fear of missing out, that all hits you. It hits you all the time. And it hit me really hard. (laughs) I mean, it's so I can only imagine what someone who has experienced this major uprising of social media is feeling. Yeah. Like if that's their whole reality, it's just, it, it's terrifying to me. And yeah. so I didn't have boundaries before, honestly, I, I would, I would spend admittedly, and I'm ashamed to admit it. I would spend like nine hours of screen time, 10 hours of screen time. Yeah. And I, I remember when I saw that, I was like, dude, what? Nine hours sitting here on my phone. That is terrifying to me. So yeah. I tr- I try my best. I mean, I, I've really tried to use that term that a lot of people have heard the post and ghost. I try to okay, make a nice. post and put it on social media and then get out of it. Because yeah. if, if you don't, you fall down that rabbit hole. You yeah. fall down that mindless scrolling. Um, admittedly, not good at it. I try my best. Um, <laughs> I deleted pretty much every app except for Instagram and YouTube. Yeah. Um, but again, with YouTube, they're, tr- they're trying to turn into TikTok and they have those YouTube shorts, YouTube shorts which... Yeah. 
I get sucked into every time. So <laughs> there's some boundaries I'm trying to implement, but again, it, it's so tough. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, uh, I've never heard the term post and ghost, but I'm a big proponent of that. That's what I do myself, or at least I try my best. Yeah. Um, nice. You and I are kind of similar, Harry, in the sense of, I think we both have this vision of, um, and, and I, I know yours is a little bit broader for us. We're, we're working with men specifically, and we have this dream of seeing men that are emotionally intelligent and relationally healthy and um, good self-understanding of, you know, what they need to just be healthy and to thrive in life. And I guess I'm wondering for you, man, like when you look ahead and you dream about that kind of world, what does it involve? Like, what do you think are some of the main things that we need to teach men and that men need to learn? Um, obviously, like at, at young ages when they're boys still, really, what are the th kind of things that we need to instill as a society so that uh, the men of the next generations are healthier, have better relationships and don't fall into some of the pitfalls that you and I have fallen into? Right, man. Um, I mean, there's a couple things. I, I think I think a big one is, you know, having shows like this, like yours, like mine, people on the internet, advocates, all of that, who kind of advocate for men's mental health, who advocate yeah. for the power of conversation and showing that it's, you know, it's okay to not be weak. I think it's important that there's people from other areas of men's health and men's sports in general. Like, I don't know if you saw the UFC thing with Patty Pimblett. No, who, I didn't actually. He opened up oh, after his, his win. His friend. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go right. ahead. Yeah. 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 Where he was talking about how his friend uh, killed himself like five hours before his weigh in. And it's just stuff like that. Like a UFC is such a, a man sport. It's such, it's two men beating the crap out of each other. Like it doesn't <laughs> get more manly than that. And they're talking <laughs> about mental health on the big stage, talking about yeah. going out, reaching, getting help, please. And so stuff like that goes a long way. I think another big part of getting to that air, getting to that life that you're talking about is teaching kids from a very young age, just different types of emotions you can feel kind of address like kind of identifying different emotions you can feel. I read this book called Atlas of the Heart. It's by Brene Brown. And she's talking about all these different emotions that you can feel that we often don't talk about. So like shame, guilt, fear, hopelessness, uh, hopefulness, like let's, let's throw a positive one in there, but yeah. it's just all these emotions that for so long guys specifically women as well, but guys in specific, they kind of just threw all of them into either happy or angry. Yeah. You know, and when you feel something like guilt and you throw it into angry, you're like, but that doesn't really feel angry. So what the heck is wrong with me? So if from a young age, if you start to identify, Hey, that feeling you're feeling that's shame, that feeling you're feeling that's hopefulness. That mm. feeling you're feeling is this, is that, is this, I think people are going to start to understand themselves more, understand their emotions more and feel more, comfortable and more assured with who they are yeah it's really well said i couldn't agree more and i think even what we were um talking about earlier it gets me excited because i think um i think of somebody like steve jobs and he obviously like he literally changed the world with his life and you get into the deeper parts of it and you realize wow he had a lot of pain and resentment and um a lot that didn't go addressed and i think it gets me excited to think about the next innovators and entrepreneurs and athletes and you know actors and professionals that are rising up who could have like mental 
health and, and wherewithal to really understand how to look after themselves while still being, being brilliant minds, you know, and geniuses that are going to shape our, our world and, and the course of world history. So it's pretty cool. Um, dude, this has been amazing. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for just being so transparent with your story and, um, and letting us just see a little bit of, of your world. As a final question, you know, you might be talking to somebody who's a couple steps behind and is saying, you know, Harry, I, I'm there like, um, suicidal ideation or body dysmorphia, or I have this porn addiction. I, I don't know how to get out. I've never felt more hopeless in my life. I don't think I'm going to make it. What would you say to that person? Oof. Um, man, keep going. I mean, there's no, like, if you're, if you're intimidated by opening up to people, if you're scared to admit to people how you're feeling or what you're going through, the beauty of the internet is that you yourself can look it up. Mm-hmm. You don't need to tell anybody. I mean, right. ideally you reach out to someone, but if, if you really don't know where to turn and you're scared to open up, there's so many resources out there that probably can help you. That can probably help you, right? Yeah. Um, I just say keep going. Those first, those first tries, like again, therapy, first six times for me, horrible. Seventh right. time worked. Yeah. So I think we have a lot of times we have this unrealistic expectation where you're gonna find that happy pill right away. You're gonna find that quick fix right away. There's no quick fix. Listen, mm. I've done antidepressants, I've done therapy, I've done self-care, I've done all of that. I still struggle right? It's about trial and error. Keep trying, keep pushing. You're going to find something that works for you. And when, you know, you find that thing, that's incredible. That doesn't mean stop working. That means keep going. You you have a lot of work to do, but that's exciting. I don't want it to sound intimidating. It's just that trial and error is so vital. So if you try something, if you look up something on the internet by yourself and you try it and it fails, keep going. Yeah. Just because that work didn't work for you doesn't mean you're broken because that's what I thought for a long time. That's really good, man. Yeah, we have an adage in our community, which is if you don't quit, you win. Mm. Yeah. You know, you just gotta keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, dude, I, I know people are gonna wanna wanna check you out. Uh we're definitely gonna put a link in uh the show notes to your podcast. But um if there's I don't know, are there any other ways that people can connect with you and get in touch? Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, I think the two biggest for me um, are the podcast. So the Mental Corner podcast, wherever you get stuff. And uh, my Instagram, just at the Mental Corner. Um, if, you, if you heard something that you thought was awesome or you, you I don't know, you found something helpful, that's great. Uh, if yeah. you want to reach out to me, um, I my DMs are always open. I have my email uh, in my Instagram, I believe. So if you want to shoot me an email, shoot me a DM by all means. And uh, yeah, hit the show up. Fantastic. Harry, thanks so much, man. This has been amazing. Of course, man. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm really happy that I finally got to do it. I know. Yeah, this is really nice, man. Thanks again. Of course. Wow. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Harry. Uh, he is, he's amazing. He's so down to earth. He's so personable. You know, we are an audio-based podcast only right now. We're not really doing video. But he's one of those guys where even when you hear his voice, you can just hear the warmth and the kindness. And it's amazing, amazing to see the way he has been able to persevere and find ways to live in mental wellness and and true mental health on a regular basis. It's been really, really cool to see. And so uh, I hope you glean something from that. 
I highly recommend you go listen to his podcast. I think especially if you enjoy the, the stories and, and hearing the more personal parts of people's experiences of mental illness and mental health recoveries, I think you're going to find this really, really valuable. And so we put a link in the show notes to his podcast. Um, but in the meantime, guys, I want to thank you so much for listening. And I want to encourage you if you are struggling with porn addiction and maybe maybe you're like, Sathya, I do struggle with body dysmorphia. Sathya, I have felt to the point of suicide because I feel hopeless in my addiction. I don't know how to get out. Um, we're here for you. you. You have an opportunity to get out right now. And there's actually a resource I'd love for you to get your hands on called The Last Relapse. It's my best-selling book and it's got my blueprint for recovery. And if you're like, hey, Sophia, that's awesome, but I actually need more immediate help. You can go to my website, you can book a call and someone from my team will talk to you and we'll see what we can do to support you in your efforts to make a full recovery and to be completely clean. But whatever you do, if you're in that position, don't waste another minute. Go get the help that you deserve and we'd love to be a part of that. That's everything for today, guys. Much love to all of you. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. It's Sathya again. Thanks for listening to Unleash the Man Within. I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a free ebook that I wrote for you called The Ultimate Guide to Porn Recovery. It provides a basic framework for the recovery process and a few of my top tips completely free of charge. You can get it now at www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. That's www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. Now, if you've been impacted by the podcast and you want to show some support in less than 60 seconds, there are three ways you can do that. First, you can leave a rating or review on your podcast platform. This lets people like you know that the content here is valuable. Secondly, you can share this episode with someone in your life that might benefit from the content. If you're passionate about helping other people experience freedom and success in their lives, this is one of the easiest ways to do that. And lastly, you can subscribe. I personally only listen to the podcast that I subscribe to. If you're seeking daily encouragement, guidance, and insight in your recovery journey, I highly recommend subscribing to Unleash the Man Within. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting with you very, very soon. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast by Sathya Sam and his guests are for general information only and should not be considered medical, clinical, or any other form of professional advice. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk.